what an amazing journey that we're on as we go through a probably a very unknown book, but a book that hopefully will inspire, light a fire, I don't know, inside of our hearts of what could and should be and how God might want us to be a part of it. And even though we may be comfortable in our own kingly palace as Nehemiah was with our, our, our good job and our safe job, that we might be willing to leave it all if God so chooses to move us to wherever, whatever that may be. Uh, whenever I, I have, in my growing up years, have spent a lot of time studying from different people, one of those guys that I like to read from uh, is no longer with us. He's just four years shy of living to be a century. His name is Peter Drucker. I like him for a lot of reasons. One, he, he was very proficient in the in the, in the communication, the understanding, and he had, a under, he had a depth of understanding about leadership and management that's just, uh, I don't think it's been, it's been matched since his passing. And uh, this is a man that just never stopped learning, never stopped growing, never stopped teaching. He was an amazing individual. But not only that, he was a believer. And, uh, and that obviously inspires me. And he drew a lot of his principles from Scripture. He was a Lutheran, uh, lived in uh, Southern California, and he was a great man. Uh, and his leadership skills. And one of the things that he talked about throughout his life, even in the Harvard Business Review at the end of his life, they asked him for what makes an effective, what makes an effective ex- executive. They asked him that question. And it really came down to a, an entire article on, on that. And efficiency was one of those things that made for an effective executive. That they were able to look at problems and they were able to look at situations and they were able to assess them and able to figure out the problems to make things better, more efficient, which efficiency brought on effectiveness, which brought on success for the companies. And he just talked about that throughout, throughout his, his writings. And that's, at the end of his life, what he's writing about, nearly a century old. And as I think about that, I think about the story of Nehemiah. And probably a, a chapter in Nehemiah that if, when you come to, if you're reading along with us, you'll come to it and probably want to skip past it pretty quickly. You'll get three or four verses into it and you're like, ah, this is going nowhere fast. And so you just turn to chapter 3 of Nehemiah. We'll be there in a moment. And we're going to do a, a high flyover of, of Nehemiah chapter 3 today. But I don't want to miss it. And just for a quick review for those who weren't with us in, in the previous messages, chapter 1 is really when Nehemiah is awakened out of his very comfortable living, living with King Artaxerxes, who's been on the throne for 20 years, and he's the cupbearer to the king, he's taking care of the wine cellar, he's taking care of, of, of the king, he's taking care of the king's valuable drink, he's, he's taking care of it all, and he's got this amazing trust relationship, and an intimate enough relationship that whenever King Artaxerxes sees him downcast, he says, that, he says you're, you're, there's something not well with you, there's something not right with you, and it's not a sickness of the body, it's a sickness of, of the heart. And then Nehemiah has this opportunity in chapter 2 to just expose what been, God's been dealing with his heart over the past five months and how God's been shaping him and remaking him and disturbing him. And I have to emphasize that again, that most vision is born through a burdensome process. It's conceived in this burdensome process where God begins to, to awaken us in, in our comfort, in our, in our ease, and begins to awaken us in that. And, and then from that we spend time... And, I'm afraid some of us skip over that. But we spend time in prayer. And whether it's five months, five years, or however long, you just spend time and you pray and you seek God in it and you find out how you can be a part of the solution. And then it's, it's birth whenever you become a part of the solution. And what is God's role for you in fixing whatever the issue is out there? 
So he comes to chapter 2 and he shares it with King Artaxerxes. He shares it with the people who are with him in Jerusalem. He shares, starts beginning to cast the vision to the people. And things begin to change because they rally around this vision. And then we come to chapter 3. And many scholars believe that chapter 3 was written actually at the end of the completion of the process. And, and sad to say, many people skip over this chapter. Some of the people that I've been reading from in preparation, Andy Stanley, Charles Swindoll, they don't even talk about chapter 3. They don't even mention it in their writings whenever they come to this chapter. But Cyril Barber is one of the, one of the persons that I've been reading from. And, and they said that, that it's probably the most significant chapter in all of Nehemiah. The most significant. Some people are skipping it. Some people are ignoring it. And yet some people are saying it's the most significant chapter in the entire book. And so I, I kind of come to this point in, in, in this journey. And I, before we go into this most significant chapter, I want to ask you, where are you at? Where are you at with God's calling, God's vision, God's disturbing you? I hope you're allowing Him to disturb you. I hope he's, He has shaken you a little bit in some area. Maybe it's outside the home. Maybe it's in the community. Maybe it's in a nonprofit. Maybe it's in the school. Maybe it's on your job. Where is God shaking you, burdening you? How are you praying that through right now? Because for every one of us, it's going to probably look a little different. Some of it's not even going to leave the home. Some of you, God is giving you a vision for your children. Think about it. What profound thought that might be. That God would literally give you a vision. For the individual children that God has given you, their personalities, their gifts, their talents, how can you as a parent help be a part of that process of launching them into this world? Maybe that's where your vision is. It's at home. Maybe your vision is on the job. Maybe it's in the government. Maybe it's any number of places. In the church, you know, most of my examples today are going to be kind of be at the church level, at the local Grace Point level, because I want to bring us to some common denominator for examples. But here, just understand this, there are, there are, there's only one interpretation of Scripture, but there are many applications. And so you have to find in your life through this study your application. How is God burdening you? Where is He moving you? And then from that, how can you flesh that out and just work through this process with us? Because I don't want us to lose... What happens in chapter 3? Because we see a leader who organizes and structures a movement, a work, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But listen to this. This is efficiency and effectiveness in its paramount. He takes volunteers, volunteer staff, and in 52 days he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Now you accomplish anything of this magnitude around an entire city, rebuilding walls, cleaning up the trash, going through the rubble, remembering the, the brokenness of, of your own world and your own life and your own family, and then rebuilding it hour after hour, day after day for 52 days. There's something about this that we need, we need to lean in and learn from Nehemiah. How can I, as a leader, as a place, as a person, as an individual, how can I be a part of what God's a part of? And how can I have that level of efficiency and effectiveness if you're a manager, if you're a coach, if you're a pastor, if you're a leader, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent. Where is it that God is burdening you? And those are titles. Where are you as an individual? Where's God changing you? Where's He burdening you beyond those individual expressions? How is He changing you? And how can, how can you Go from the burden and the vision to the reality. 
As I said last week, so many of our visions end in fantasy and not reality. How can we move our vision beyond fantasy to reality and not just let it be this pipe dream, this idea, this good idea, and not let it die inside of us? John Maxwell said it well. He said, anyone can steer a ship, but it takes a leader to chart a course. Anyone can steer a ship. It takes a leader to chart a course. And the problem is that sometimes whenever our visions are there, they're so raw, they're so broken, they're so, they're so, they're so fragmented that sometimes it's hard to, to, to get it all and put it together and see how it's going to come together and how it's all going to fit and become a reality. It's all these, these pieces. Now, again, if you're handed a plan with step one, step two, step three, that's easy, all right? That's pretty much idiot proof. The thing is, is life doesn't give you a plan, all right? Many times it just gives you pieces, sometimes broken pieces, sometimes broken down walls and burned down gates. And that's what life gives you. Where are you going to go with the brokenness and the burden that God is placing on your heart? And how are you going to craft it into something meaningful and powerful? So how do you structure for success? And, and I think it, there are some pillars that I think we need to look at. When we look at uh, what Nehemiah does here, three pillars uh, to be specific, and you might find them more. We're not going to take the time to read through the 32 verses, all right? Again, you can read those on your own, and you might, it might take you a while because you kind of get lost in it like it's a Hebrew phone book, all right? Because there's a whole lot of names, there's a whole lot of gates, and there's a whole lot of stuff. So just kind of take it through bite size by bite size. We're going to do this flyover and hit, jump in and hit several of these verses, but one of the things... I think we need to understand about how am I going to move from this vision, this burden, to seeing it become a reality. And I don't think anything, as we said last week, can be done significantly of our own. We need a partnership about this. There needs to be a partnership. There needs to be the bringing on of other people with you. Partnership is when you work together to accomplish a stated common goal. All right? That's a partnership. Tommy Lasorda, who was a longtime Dodger, Los Angeles Dodgers uh, manager, said this, playing for yourself wins trophies. Playing for your team wins championships. Pat Riley, a longtime uh, successful NBA coach, has said this, every team must decide very consciously to uphold covenant terms that represent the best of values, voluntary cooperation, love, hard work, total concentration for the good of the team. The greatness flowing through the heart of the team must be pumped out into all extremities. See, championship teams are not born in individuals. They may be led by individuals, a Nehemiah, a Moses, all right, a Peyton Man or who's the Eli Manning today, or or, or Brady today, they, 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 they may be led by them, but it's going to take the team to bring it all together and to make it happen. And it's going to take time. Now, if you notice through this, this chapter, and again, I'm not going to take time, but you can just, just listen to this list of people who get in there and start building the walls. Now, if you're building the walls, and that's what God has given you the burden to do, what are you going to do? You're probably going to find professional wall builders. That's who you're going to look for. That's not who Nehemiah looks for. He casts the vision in chapter 2. They say, let's do it. And this is his work 
load. This is, these are, this is the roster. The priests, the Levites, the governors all had bricks in their hands. The common people, the gatekeepers, the guards, the farmers, the union men, the goldsmiths, the pharmacists, the merchants, the temple servants, the in-towners and out-of-towners, children and women, all brought bricks and rebuilt the wall. It wasn't just Nehemiah. Nehemiah, that's a good idea. Go build the wall. It wasn't just Nehemiah and his compadres from King Artaxerxes' palace. Go build the wall. It was everybody buying in to the partnership that I've got a role to play. You'll find, in that chapter 3, you'll find all those positions, goldsmiths, merchants, pharmacists, you'll find it all right in there. They're handing bricks to one another. They're rebuilding the wall. Children, women included. They're all in there building the wall. You know, whenever we started Grace Point Church, back well, a year and a half before we started Grace Point Church, we were still living in Africa, and we began to pray about Okay, God, how are we going to do this? Who's going to do it with us? Who's going to be on our team? Who's going to be partners with us? And we, we were in Africa, and of course, it was here, Grace Point's future was here, and who is it going to be? So we just started sharing with our prayer partners. Everybody that was on our prayer list knew that we were coming back. And everyone on our prayer list was invited to join us in that work. But there were 10 people, I, I counted them, there were 10 people that I really, really, really wanted. I called them my dream team. I wanted these 10 people to be on the team to help start the church. That 10 people, you know how many God gave us? Four. He only gave us 40% of the dream team. He filled in with other people. And you know what? Here we sit today. See, sometimes we want perfect scenarios. Sometimes we want perfect people. Sometimes we want all this. But sometimes God gives us farmers and guards, and gatekeepers, and pharmacists, and merchants, and temple servants. Sometimes God gives us worthless priests to build the walls. Sometimes it's not the dream team that we get. We get who we get, and God empowers them and works through them. There's a couple of principles about partnerships that we just need to understand. One of those is that the teamwork makes the dream work. I know that's trite. We've all heard it before. But teamwork really does. You help that fantasy, that dream, that, that vision become a reality. And who's on your team? There were 39 different groups that went out. 39 different workers. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 3, and I, I'm going to struggle through these names, but just forgive me later on, all right? It says, and, then, and next to them, Merimuth, the son of Uriah, and, and the son of Hakaz, repaired. The next, and next to them, Meshulam the son of Berechiah, the son of that guy, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to them, it just keeps going on and on and on. And here's this, this effort that's being done. But you, you're seeing something here. And next to them. And next, there, there's this plan. There's, there's something happening. And, and whenever they got in there, everyone was repairing this section of the wall. But I love verse 11, because verse 11, if you, if, you, if you skip down and read that, it says, and next to them, uh, excuse me, verse 11, and Machijah, the son of Haram, and, and, Ashub, and Ashub, the son of, okay, that guy, and repaired another section. I just want to point that out. That it's one thing when, when you have your section to do. What's another thing when you're done with your section you pick up another brick and you go help 
another section. Now again, you're probably going to read this, and it's going to be really, but don't miss that. Because it's very easy to skip over that section. But it wasn't just that I had my section of the wall, and that's all I'm going to do. Is you have people picking up bricks and helping the other people. That's when the dream is becoming a reality. Teamwork makes the dream work. Even great people like a Steve Jobs says none of us is as smart as all of us. None of us is as smart as all of us. A great mind. None of us is as strong as all of us. None of us is as able as all of us. None of us is as valuable as all of us. And see, it's not Mike at the lead of the Grace Point Church. No. It's all of us in partnership together, working together about what God is doing here. Think about this afternoon. This afternoon there's going to be a football game. I think they call it the Super Bowl. I don't really care who wins. All of my team's lost. But there's going to be a pretty boy Manning and a pretty boy Brady that's going to be in the games. And they're going to go out there and they're going to do their best to, to win, to lead their teams to the championship. But the problem is, is that it won't be, the problem is, is that many times they will be the ones who get the credit. But I wonder, if you really dive into it, if, if a guy named Mitch Petrus, who used to be an Arkansas Razorback, who's now a guard for, for, for the New York Giants, if he doesn't block, and, and if he doesn't pull and go downfield and block the way he's supposed to block, if that team, if he just creates a gaping hole and he just sets back because Manning behind him is a good enough quarterback, he'll carry the ball. He'll take care of it. He'll get us to victory. If that's what happens, they'll never win. They'll have a hole and they'll be penetrated every single time. I just want to emphasize for us today that if we're going to see God do great things through Grace Point Church, if we're going to see God do great things in your life, don't go it alone. Find your team. Find your partners. Do it together. Now, you ought to realize, though, whenever you're trying to mobilize and you're trying to motivate and you're trying to get your team together, not everybody's going to go with you. In fact, here's another reality of partnership or principle on partnership. Projects include workers and shirkers. You'll find some people that just become dead weight. What do you do with them? Hmm? Think about it. How does this happen? Look at verse 5. And you have all throughout the scriptures, you are all throughout chapter 3, he says, next to them, next to them, next to them. They're constantly building this section after that section after that section. But look at verse 5. And next to them, the Tychoites repaired. But the nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So it's almost as if everybody and their dog is out preparing. Everyone and their dog is out getting their hands dirty. Everyone and their dog is out with a sweating brow. Everyone has got blisters on their hands but the people, the nobles particularly, they didn't live in Jerusalem and they didn't see it was their responsibility. So they just stepped back and they just sat back and they shirked their responsibility. You say, well, that was probably common throughout. No, there are other people that are here in this passage that did not live inside the walls of Jerusalem that had bricks in hand, mortar in, uh, 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 mortar in hand, and they were going to town. But these people were shirkers of the responsibility. British comedian said it like this, I, would, I, would, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. Think about it. I can sit and look at it for hours. What do you do with people who just look at work, who look at movements, who don't get in, 
They're not joiners. They're not participants. Listen, the priests were not holier than thou. The goldsmiths did not say, my hands are trained for gold, not for bricks. The merchants didn't say, well, I, I need to be making money. I need to be the one out there making money. I don't need to be in there getting dirty. It was the Tico people of southeast Bethlehem. The nobles of that. Some of them were working, but the nobles were too good for the work. See, there's a life principle here. You love everyone, but you move with the movers. You're going to have people in your life you're going to cast a vision to, and the only, only thing they're going to be is critical of that vision. You're going to have a passion and a desire, and you're going to really want to move forward with that, but there are going to be people who are going to be critical of it. But what do you do? Do you just stop because, oh, I didn't win everybody's heart? No, you keep moving. You keep building. You hand me another brick. Okay, you're not going to fill in that gap. I'll fill in that gap. You have people, like we just read in verse 11, that, hey, that my section of the wall's done. I'm jumping in there. I'm going to take up. You know, as a church, we've moved from decade one to decade two. And what we've done, and we've moved from decade one to decade two, we're putting in place this envision for the future. It's not just living in the first decade and having a great first decade, have, having a, a great first run at it. But we've got in the back this puzzle piece of this envision thing. And the reality is it takes every one of us to be a part of this vision. No shirkers. We need everyone involved, everyone buying in to the vision. If you don't, guess what? We're going to keep moving. We're not stopping. But move with the movers. Will you be a part of where God is leading our church? Are all of our leadership? This is not just a one-man voice out here. It's not my voice alone. There were people poking me saying, Mike, we need to do this. We need to expand. We need to grow. It wasn't something that I dreamt up. I promise you that. It's very taxing and very demanding. But it's because I realized that God isn't finished with Grace Point Church. And if we don't prepare the container, He'll never be able to fill it. So we've got to prepare the container before He can fill it. So what we need is we need partners. We need every member to see their part of the puzzle. Their part in the, in the vision. That's the only way we're going to do it. Number two. You need partners. Number two, you need ownership. Ownership is very, very important. Your vision, your vision will only go so far as it becomes their vision. Your vision must become their vision. Your vision must, must be, they must own it themselves. When you look in Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verse 17, again, we read it last week. Chapter 2, verse 17 it was Nehemiah who said, let us build. Let us build. That was his challenge. That was his call. His call for commitment. Now what is your vision? Eventually you're going to have to lay it out there and call for commitment. We need to do this with our children. It's a time of commitment. It means you're going to have to make funds available. You're going to have to rearrange your schedule. It means you're going to have to make it a priority in your, in, in your life. All right? So Nehemiah called for commitment. Let us build. And what, how do the people respond? People respond, let us arise and build. Let us arise and build. We're on, we're on board with you. Now, I love what Nehemiah does in this, in this passage of Scripture. Again, we're not reading ver word by word. But what he does is he very strategically puts people 
rebuilding the walls. Again, just imagine a city wall. Just imagine going around the entire city of Jerusalem. How in the world are you going to divide this up? How in the world is it going to get done? It's only going to get done in a partnership fashion. We're all in. We're all in until it's done. But also, you've got to have that buy-in. You've got to have that ownership. They've got to own it. What Nehemiah does is very strategic and very smart on his part. Is he takes the Smith family. I'm going to say that to the Hebrew names. He takes the Joneses. And he says, listen, when you go outside your front door and you look out and you see a broken down wall, that's where I want you to start building. He said, go just opposite of your house and build. Where are you going to put in making sure there's not any cracks in the mortar, making sure you have the very best bricks, making sure it's right in front of your house. Now, if it's on the other side of town, you may skimp and you may shortcut and you may do some, 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 you know, cheap work. But if it's right in front of your house, you're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss a brick. You're not going to miss uh, making sure that foundation is laid. Look at this. He does it again and again and again. Verse 10. He said he, he put them opposite of his house in verse, down to verse 23. Verse 23 again. He puts him beside his own house. Verse 28, opposite his own house. Verse uh, 29, opposite his own house. Verse 30, I like this one. He put him, uh, let's see, verse 30, he put it opposite his chamber. That guy must have lived in a condo, okay? Everybody else had houses, but that guy had a condo. He lived in a chamber. So he put him opposite, just opposite to... That may not seem that big, but again, think about it. If it's your family living in the weakest link of the chain, living in the most vulnerable spot, aren't you going to make sure your wall is very secure? I love the picture there because what happens is he gets them buy-in. Once they knew that it was their family they were protecting, they were more than willing to go out and pick up a brick and repair the wall. What is it going to take for you to have buy-in? When there is a personal connection between a vision and the person, there's ownership. Let me say that to you again. When there is personal connection between the vision and the person, there will be ownership. They'll buy into it. Again, let me draw an application out of this. As Grace Point Churches, we move into the future, as we move into the second decade, and we talk about our expansion and all that kind of stuff. And this is not a message series about that. It's just a part of our church and where we're at right now. But as we move into the future and we're talking about expanding a building, what are, what are we doing? The number one motivation for the expansion was our children. Now, I want to show you this. Look at this. This is the layout of our current to the far right and to, to the far left, our expansion. Everything in gray, which is just the far left, is the main worship center. Everything in green is what we're calling community connections area, foyers, coffee shop, places you can sign up for events, registration, different things like that. The yellow represents administrative or pastoral team offices. The purple, which is 14,754 square feet, is dedicated solely to the next generation. The largest area of the next uh, of our total square footage, and yet only a third of our attenders on Sunday are our children. Over the largest category 
will be dedicated to our children. That's just a square foot. Now, now, where is that? Where's the buy-in? If you have a child, I'm guessing you partly chose a church based on the children programs, based on the student ministry, based on what it would help your children become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then what we're saying into the future, into your future, into your family's future, into your children's future, that we make it a priority right down to the square inch. And we're going to make it a priority in every other area, in quality programs and ministries and, and personnel and everything like that. But let me just show you, that's just one area. And as we move forward as a church, we've got to realize the buy-in is because this is important to you. You are an owner of this vision. It's not just Mike up here harping on about it. Herb Kellerham, CEO of, uh, of Southwest Airlines, for the longest time was the only profitable airlines out there. He said this, he said, I never had any control and never wanted it. If you create an environment where people truly participate and don't need control, you don't need control. They know what needs to be done and they do it. And the more that people will devote uh, to your cause on a voluntary basis, a willing basis, the fewer hierarchies and control mechanisms you need. We're not looking for blind obedience. We're looking for people who, on their own initiatives, want to be doing what they're doing because they consider it to be a worthwhile objective. Now, that's a man selling seats on an airplane. What about your vision? If your vision doesn't generate ownership as Nehemiah so strategically and wisely did by putting people right in front of their own houses, rebuilding the walls in front of their own houses, you're going to have a hard time having buy-in. So partnership is important. Who's going with you? Who's on your team? Who's building with you? I love it. Who is doing it with you? Ownership. Have you, have you transferred the vision enough that they're biting down on it? They're saying, this is important. It could happen. It should happen. It's not just me now being, being the, the, the sole uh, oracle of, 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 the, of, the, of the vision. It's now other people. They're owning it. Well, let me bring you to another part of this, and that's leadership. And leadership is so important because it's an irreplaceable pillar. You can't get away from it. Oh, well, you're just going to brag on Nehemiah for a moment. You know, I'm going to brag on Nehemiah because Nehemiah brags on everybody else. Nehemiah knew how to, one, get partners, two, pass on the ownership. And in 52 days, mobilize volunteer staff, goldsmiths, priests, everything, and to get the job done. Now, if we could not learn from that, I think we're missing it. But Nehemiah had such an amazing quality of leadership. What were his qualities? He had a very humble attitude. It's one of the qualities that he had. He was very humble. Nehemiah isn't even mentioned. His name isn't even mentioned in, in chapter 3. It wasn't Nehemiah looking, saying, hey, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. People will follow the person before they follow the plan. There was something about Nehemiah and his leadership that they said, yes, we're for this and we can do this and let's go do it together. But Nehemiah isn't even mentioned in rebuilding the wall. What was he doing? Was he sitting back, sipping my ties or something like that? I don't think so. I think he was going around and he was patting everybody on the rear end. 
He was high-fiving him. He was making sure the work was getting done. But his name is not mentioned as the hero of the text. Number two, strategic delegation. Mother Teresa said it like this. You can do what I cannot do. I can do what you cannot do. Together, we can do great things. You can do what I can't do. I can't do. I can do what you cannot do. But together, we can do great things. This ancient wall, this ancient wall that was broken down, that if you flew over at 30,000 feet, all you would see would be rubble. In chapter 3, verse 1, the priests start at the sheep gate. But in chapter 3, verse 32, and between the upper chamber and the corner of the sheep gate, so they've gone from one sheep gate corner all the way around the city to the other sheep gate corner. The merchants and the merchants repaired. Everyone is in place. And again, I just want to emphasize to you that you just go through and count it because it's like 34, 35 times that it mentions and next to them and next to them and next to them and next to them or it says after him and after him and after him. That again is this, this strategic delegation that he was doing. But number three, there was a personal commendation. Again, Nehemiah is not mentioned once in his own book in chapter 3 as being the hero behind the wall building. It wasn't about him being the hero. But there are 34 different people named that Nehemiah in his own memoirs says, this man, remember him. This man, remember him. This man, remember him. There's a quality in him. See, in the IRS, you're a number. To the Census Bureau, you're a statistic. But to a good leader, you're a person. You're a person. You have a name. And I want to say this. Nehemiah was able to accomplish something in 52 days with volunteer staff because he got partners on his vision. Because, because he gave them ownership. Right next to your house, go out and build a wall. <laughs> and because as a leader... He didn't take the credit. He gave the credit to them. Go back to Peter Drucker and I'm just reminded of, again, him as a leader and his ability to teach and to lead and, and so forth. And At 95 years of life, he was interviewed on, uh, in USA Today. It was actually November 2004. I, I clipped out that, that, that section. And uh, as, he, as, he, as he's asked, how is it that you as a leader... How were you able to lead and to be so effective for so many years? And all This is in the USA Today. This is not a Sunday school quarterly. And at 95, Peter Drucker talked about how he reads about two to three books and magazines a week. But he said, every day, I will always read the Bible. Mostly either the Psalms or the Epistles of St. Paul. Just now, I find them very exciting. Just now, I find them very exciting and full of insights. Earlier readings didn't reveal. I, I love that statement. Just now, at 95, I'm reading them every day. But at 95, I'm still getting principles. I'm still getting truths. You know, this is not a business book. This is not a blueprint on how to start a business. But when it speaks to business, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a science book. But when it speaks to science. It's not a marriage book, but when it speaks to marriage, it is inerrant and infallible. 
And what we see in the life of Nehemiah is a man who had a vision for his city. For his city. Even though he was living in a palace back in Persia under a king with a nice secure job, he had a vision for his city. Has God given you a vision for your city? Has God given you a vision for Northwest Arkansas? Has God given you a vision for your family? God giving you a vision for your neighborhood, for your POA, your property owners association. He's giving you a vision. Be half. Pursue it. And let God begin to shape in you and do in you and do through you what he did in Nehemiah when he completed the vision. I, I, I think about Drucker and I think about Nehemiah. And I've already said this again and again. Nehemiah prays. All the time. Nine different times in this book. Nine different times. Drucker, at 95, is reading the Word of God every day. And God is still speaking new truths into his life. How do we think we're going to go into this world and be Druckers or Nehemiahs if we're not in an intimate relationship with God Almighty? How? How, really? The secrets... Or maybe just in an intimate relationship where I'm willing to obey and go and do and be a part of, be a partner to, gain ownership in, be a leader in, whatever God's up to. Would you pray with me? You know, maybe God hasn't given you a clear vision today. and Maybe over the past few weeks, maybe you even become frustrated because, because really you're, you're at a point now where you just don't, you don't know why, but you were hearing all this vision talk and dream talk, and you know that your life's about something and should be about something, but you're kind of stuck. And you've been stuck. I don't know, maybe for days, months, years? Stuck. Maybe, maybe your prayer needs to be, God, give me a vision for the city. Give me a vision for my neighborhood. Give me a vision to be the God of the city. Father God, I ask right now that you do great things to Grace Point Church and the people in this room right now. That you do great, great things in this city. That you do great, great things around the world. Because you had people who were willing to leave the comforts of the palace and to pursue you in the rubble. Wherever that means, whatever that means, Lord, help us to get your vision for our lives.